Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat thereon had a bow, and there was given unto him a crown, and he came forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Another horse came forth, a red horse. And to him that sat thereon, it was given to take peace from the earth, and that they should slay one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I saw, and behold, a black horse, and he that sat thereon had a balance in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A measure of wheat for a shilling, three measures of barley for a shilling, and the oil and the wine hurt thou not. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I saw, and behold, a pale horse. And he that sat upon him, his name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And there was given unto him authority over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with death, and by the wild beasts of the earth. That's all the farther we'll go with the scripture reading. That's the first four seals and the first four horses. The last one, of course, being followed by Hades. The debate is, uh, was there a fifth horse? It doesn't, doesn't matter. It, it won't change what we have to learn from this today, whether there is or isn't. But the first horse, a white one, uh, depicts conquest. The second one, very simply, depicts war. The third, the black horse, is famine. <clears throat> and the fourth, the pale horse, is death. Some like to call the fourth horse a green horse because the Greek word sometimes means green. Typically, though, when it's pale is used in connection with one's uh, complexion, uh, skin tone, uh, it means pale instead of green. Doesn't make any difference. Once again, green, pale, why does it matter what color that horse is? It's death. Hell follows after death. Now, these are the similar conditions that Jesus refers to. We'll pick up the 13th chapter of Mark. Jesus was leaving the temple, and one of his disciples came to him, drawing his attention to the temple, and said, uh, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They were bragging on their temple. And Jesus says this very unsettling, shocking thing. He says, There shall not be left one stone upon another. And of course this is devastating. They are so proud of this temple and he prophesies the destruction of this temple. And 
as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John came to him privately trying to find out what, what is this you're talking about? The temple is going to be destroyed. And then Jesus goes into a little bit of what it's going to be like in the last days. Those of you who have been with me through a number of these series, you already should understand we are in the last days. They were in the last days ever since Jesus arose from the grave. That's all been a part of the last days. Now, end times might depict the latter part of the last days, but in the last days. So the entire age from Christ to Christ is the last days. And it will be marked by certain things. It's what Jesus describes. He says, watch that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. There's one of the things that John saw in this vision. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. The end is not yet. Notice that. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. That's something else John noticed in these writers. And these are the beginning of birth pangs. For we see Jesus prophesying about war and famine and violence. But the interesting thing here is Jesus said, when you see these things, this, these are not signs of the end. These are signs of the beginning of sorrows. Now, the reason that's significant is because even in Jesus' day, there were prophecy teachers that were teaching, fond of pointing to certain sufferings associated with what they believed to be end times and saying, there is proof right there, proof that this is the end. It's, everything's just about to come down around us. They, they've been doing this. Now, we hear prophecy teachers doing that all the time. They try to point to signs, say, this is proof that this is the end. But they've been doing this ever since Jesus' day. And then Jesus mentioned these signs, and he says something so shocking, contrary to what the modern, the popular uh, pop, uh, prophecy teachers of the day were teaching, when he says, and these signs don't mean is the end. It means the beginning of the end. So how close is the beginning of the end to the end? Nobody knows. Notice the four horsemen coming in a logical sequence. Conquest spawns war. War brings economic crisis, resulting in famine. All of these result in great loss of life. They're all working in conjunction with one another. And most of us have probably looked at the four horsemen as representing conditions that will usher in the tribulation. But to the churches to whom this was written, they would not have understood that to be setting the stage for the tribulation. First of all, they would have looked at those symbols differently than we do. They're, the symbols they saw, they would have related to the familiarity with their world. And the Parthians and the Romans were two mighty empires that were in competition. And when Alexander the Great had his kingdom divided, uh, the Parthians took the eastern part, and the Romans took the western part, 
and they continued to devour and consume and take over power until the two powers met in the middle, the Parthians versus the Romans. Eventually the Parthians become, become the weaker and the Romans would become the stronger, just like it was in the days of the early church, in the days when this letter was written, in the days when the churches would be reading this letter. But they're still concerned about the Parthians. And the Parthians trained their entire army with the bow and arrow. Now, can, can you understand why that the early church in reading this and this mighty conqueror comes on a white horse and uh, has the bow and the arrow? The Romans did not train their soldiers in bow and arrow. They had a, a few select marksmen that they trained, but the entire Parthian army was known as bow and arrow army. And uh, the Parthian army was very famous for their sacred white horses. What do you think the early church is thinking when they see this vision of a white horse and uh, the bow and the arrow? They think the Parthians are coming to get us. And they were worried about that. The fact of the matter is, the Roman Empire bragged about Pax Romana, which is Roman peace, which was their motto. They want peace in the world. And even though they continued to conquer, they made everybody believe we are a peaceful people. So everybody's proud of the Roman peace. The, the Roman Empire is the, most, uh, the, the greatest empire in the world, and the world is at peace, <laughs> in spite of the fact Romans still continuing to take territory in. But you come to them with a message about the peace is about to come to an end. And after 200 years of peace... And them having this sense of security, this vision would have rocked their world. Our peace is coming to an end. The Parthians are on the move. They're going to come. You can imagine everything that they attempted to make out of this. And then the prophecy of famine was particularly alarming to the more prosperous churches who would read this because they weren't struggling. They, they were wealthy. They, they were well-to-do. They, they were well-fed. They had great resources. And here comes the vision. Your peace is going to be gone. Somebody's going to come and take over your empire. There's going to be war in spite of your propaganda for peace. And there's going to be a shortage of food. It would have been very alarming to these churches to read this. And then interestingly, instructions are given in the middle of this. Whenever the famine comes, touch not the oil and the wine. And whatever that demonstrates, some have suggested because the oil and wine don't need Constant cultivation and care. They can just take care of themselves. The olive tree is the oil. The uh, grapevines, the, the wine. So it don't destroy them. I don't know if that makes sense to me or not. But what does make sense is in the midst of this, it shows a measure of God's mercy. There's going to be destruction, but there's going to be some things that God has the ability to spare. We should take comfort in knowing that the enemy is never allowed to go beyond what God sets the limits for. So what does this chapter say to us? I've just kind of quickly gone over the reading and given a little explanation of, of what the, uh, uh, the churches may have read into this. History now reveals the Parthians didn't come against them. As much as they feared that's probably what it was, but you know, that's, that's the questionable skill of prophecy teachers. They're always trying to pretend to tell you they know what this prophecy means and this is the way it's going to play out. And when it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it embarrasses them at all. 
And we even have modern day prophecy teachers that have been trying to read things into prophecy uh, for, for a long time. I, and if I say for my lifetime, that's a very short period of time. But I, I know over my lifetime, I've heard prophecy teachers uh, talking about the way they think prophecy is going to play out. It was real popular years ago when I was just a young minister to make Rush, read Russia into prophecy prominently. And of course, there was a time when uh, we were, there was, there was a lot of tension between the United States and Russia. So that really made it look like these prophecy, the prophecy teachers were, were spot on. But then uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union and leaving Russia alone uh, uh, by itself, not the strength of the Soviet Union, then the prophecy teachers begin to rethink whether they were accurate or not. There's been speculation about the identity of the Antichrist, and those didn't ever play out. There's been a lot of speculation by prophecy teachers. So the prophecy teachers today are no better than the prophecy teachers back then were. And these people thinking the Parthians are coming. It, we're doomed. They're back. They're, they're bouncing back. We thought we had them whipped, and they're coming back. It didn't really prove to be them at all. As a matter of fact, uh, what took over and broke up the Roman Empire was uh, a variety of powers from what we know as as Germany and the uh, uh, Germanic tribes like the Franks and the uh, Burgundanians and the Vandals who came in one by one and piece by piece and little by little they dismantled the Roman Empire and the fact that prophecy teachers would make these assumptions about prophecy that seems to make sense to them just reminds us that you've got to be careful about prophecy teachers trying to tell you what's going to happen like they have really the inside information. This is the way it's shaping up. You know what prophecy teachers usually do? They usually take what happens now and try and turn around and impose that on what the Bible's saying because they want you to keep sending your money and keep them on TV. We can't hardly nail these things down. It's, uh, we can see something's coming. The churches could see something was coming and indeed something was coming. But what the one thing I want to get out of this, the first thing that is very important to us is when we read this, that the churches were, some of them doing very well, some of them were poor churches, but they were living in a Roman empire of peace. And this prophecy comes, there's going to come war, there's going to come conquest, there's going to come famine, there's going to come death. You people are going to start slaughtering each other. And the thing that stands out here is that this world is temporary. Whatever conditions that we see now, we have no guarantee are going to be here tomorrow, next week, next year. We are spoiled Americans. <laughs> Over 200 years in this young experimental republic that we have. Not a democracy, we're a republic. And it's, it's been an interesting experiment uh, catapulting us into a, a leading nation in the entire world. And we're watching now as the foundation is beginning to crumble. and Things are falling apart in the design of our nation. And even, even beginning to try to dismantle the very constitutional papers that have given us the foundation for what we are. We have lived in a country that even with our warts, even with our problems, e even with our embarrassing times in history, 
it's been a special nation that has been a model for the world to study and say, how did a nation like this arise and become so great? So the genius of the founding fathers and the way they designed our constitution. And we've been a free nation. Other than having civil war here, we haven't hosted a world war yet. Not on our soil. And we've lived, uh, it's been prosperous. It's been peaceful for us on our soil. And uh, even people who are in poverty here are comparatively rich compared to people who are in poverty in other nations around the world. And it can all change as much as we are comfortable with what we have and what we have experienced and what we've received. It can all change in a moment's time. That's, that's the uh, transitory nature of this world that those churches experienced. Things were going along well under the powerful Roman government, uh, the empire of 200 years. And who's to say this is ever going to change? But it did. It changed rapidly as that thing began to disintegrate. What can happen in the United States? Well, of course, things can change. We have no guarantee that this nation, as we've known it, is going to make it another 50 years. Think about that as you're raising your children. But don't stop having children. But think about what kind of a world they're going to hear. It may not be the world you enjoyed. Our national debt is over $20 trillion. That's just a number. It just flies through our head, $20 trillion. How do we get our brain around what $20, $20 trillion really is? Well, let's put it into time. If one million seconds equals 12 days, then a billion seconds equals 32 years. And a trillion seconds equals 32,000 years. Convert that back into dollars. One trillion equals 32,000 years. We've got a 20 trillion dollar debt. Who of you thinks with a trillion, 20 trillion dollar debt, we're good to go for the next 200 years? Things can change rapidly. How long, the question is, will we remain prosperous? How long will we remain free? Can you even imagine the United States of America not being a free nation? The value of your paper money used to be backed by gold. For every dollar that a person had, there was the equivalent amount of gold stored to back that up. We left the gold standard and started printing money to meet the demand. The money that you have, the paper money, is only worth what somebody else is willing to honor it to be. It has an intrinsic value of paper. If somebody will take it in good faith, you can still spend it. But there's nothing to back it up. How long is our nation going to last? With monopoly money, we're sitting on a power keg. And, but, but it's not just our nation. There are people on a personal level that know how fragile life is. We have people in this congregation here today. You are one single paycheck away from not being able to pay your mortgage payment. You're running out of groceries before the end of the month. Some people 
might have a decent retirement nest egg, but a volatile stock market could wipe them out like it happened in 2008 when I was pastoring in California. We had the little bobble in the market back in the early uh, 2000s. I had a man in my church who had done well for himself, and he had him a nice uh, retirement, uh, half a million dollars or something in, in retirement, and him and his wife were living very comfortably. He called up his uh, investment uh, manager and told him, he said, I want you to sell this stock. And by the time he got back, the market had crashed, and he called up his investor. He said, my money's safe. He said, no, I didn't do it. I didn't think you needed that. The man lost his entire retirement, had to go out and buy a, a, a pay telephone route. You know, you don't see many pay telephones, but at that time he bought a route and he went around servicing pay telephones just to make a living because he had lost his retirement from one week to the next. He went from comfortably retired to having nothing and having to run around and service pay telephones. That's how fast things can change. Yet some of you living on the very edge of your paycheck. It doesn't take but just a week out of work and you don't know how you're going to dig out of that. Your, your books are balanced precariously. It, it's, it takes scraping and saving every nickel and dime to make things work. You know what it means to be living in that fragile state. You have to be constantly aware that things are not guaranteed to continue tomorrow like they are today. We're living in a very volatile world. The people you work for could go out of business. You could lose your job. This week you're feeling fine. Next week they might discover you're full of cancer. You feel great today, you could have a heart attack tomorrow. This week you enjoy your circle of friends. Next week there's people missing from that circle because they've been taken from this world. Things change so fast. And that's what the churches of Revelation were confronted with is you think everything is continuing as is for a long time. But the message to them was it will change. It will change dramatically. It will change rapidly. You better get ready. I wonder if you're ready. Or if you're just banking on the way things have been that they will continue. Are you really ready for what's coming down the road? The second thing that we get out of this scripture reading that I think is very important, is at least was important for the churches that read it, should be important for us, is God is sovereign over all. And that was a theme that had been running through the first part of the book of Revelation very strongly because I said there's a message to Revelation. It's not just about trying to figure out all these signs and symbols. It continues to hammer God is sovereign. The bigger question we must grapple with is whether the havoc represented by these four horsemen is merely a prophetic revelation of natural things that are going to happen or whether the chaotic conditions are the ordered judgments of God. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that. Have you pondered what do these four horsemen represent? When you've got war, you're just talking about a revelation that someday we're just going to get so irritated with each other, we're going to start shooting at each other and launching missiles and exploding bombs. Is that what this writer is all about? Famine. What is, uh, I just read recently, by the year 2050, we are anticipated to have a world population of 9 billion people. They're trying to figure out today how to feed 9 billion people on the face of the earth with the resources we have now. 
Of course, the answer they came up with was kind of disturbing. They're going to grow beef in a laboratory and sell it to you. I, I, I want to die before we get to that point. <laughs> Nevertheless, they realize problems are coming. They realize they're going to be, we're going to be faced with how do you deal with that kind of a population around the world? How do you feed them? Is this vision about the famine that's coming simply because the population is exploding? Is this vision? What, what, no, the fact of the matter is, let me just cut to the chase. These four horsemen are four judgments of God. These are not revelation of things that are just going to transpire because of the direction, the trajectory that our world is taking. These are four judgments of God that are coming. The seals are opened. The command is given to come forth. The writer comes forth. Perhaps angelic writers. And as they ride, the judgment of God comes upon the earth. Judgment that brings war, brings people judgment, that brings conquest, absolutely. There's a purpose in God sending judgment. The reason God sends judgment is for the purpose of calling people back to Him. And the reason we need that is because we have a world now that is departing from God. And God needs to send judgment to declare to the world, I am the sovereign God. When I say it rains, it rains. When I say it doesn't rain, it doesn't rain. I'm the one that will send judgment. I will send wars if necessary. You say, well, I wonder, does God really do that? Well, yeah, you look at the history of God dealing with Israel. And the, uh, the years, the many years that uh, uh, <clears throat> Israel s spent in uh, oppression and bondage to other nations. You know why they did that? It was the judgment of God. It wasn't a natural occurrence. God sent judgment to a rebellious people. So I'll send you into bondage until you learn to realize I'm still God. We see it very clearly. Yeah, you read in Ezekiel chapter 5. They went into captivity. They lost their holy city. They lost their temple. And read what Ezekiel 5 says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She's rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you. You have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem. I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations because of all of your detestable idols. I will do to you what I have done, never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat their children. Children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you, and I will scatter all your survivors to the winds. And therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you, and a third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. 
A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursued with drawn sword. And this is the punishment, the judgment of God on a willfully rebellious, wicked, sinful people. So whenever you're looking at the four horsemen, God's going to send conquerors. God's going to send war. God's going to send famine. God's going to send death. And hell's going to follow after it. Yes, you can believe that God is about up to here with his world. He's not going to allow men to thumb their nose in his face forever. There will come a time when God says, enough is enough. And he will send judgment. And it will come and will cause people to have to come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign. He's still the one calling the shots. He's still the one that we need to be recognizing as overall. He, he's a God of mercy. He's a God of judgment. We have to draw our attention back to God. We should look to Him in the times of our suffering. We should look to Him in our moments of deepest despair. And when we go through those times, we are tempted to think God has abandoned us. We are tempted to think He has given up control and ceded authority to Satan. But this chapter shows us the methodical way in which God supervises the calamities. He's in control of all that. Now, doesn't this make God a cruel God? Not at all. If famine and pestilence and ravaging wild animals and civil war in which people will kill one another are all directed by God, some are going to think, why would God do such a thing? What kind of God sends wild animals to eat the people? What kind of God causes people to kill other people? What kind of God sends famine so that people can starve? Sends plagues and epidemics so people can suffer and hundreds of thousands die agonizing deaths. What kind of God does that? I'll tell you what kind of God does that. A righteous God who ultimately comes to the point that he is forced to address the rebellion of humans here on earth. Are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready? I, I, I know there's a multitude of people outside the church walls. They are not ready for this. They don't have time for God. They don't honor God. They don't respect God. They don't fear God. But this is going to come, and they're going to learn about the God I already know. I'm just praying I'm the oil in the wine. <laughs> Touch not the oil in the wine. God in his mercy can send his judgments on those who need it and spare those for whom it is unnecessary. The third thing I want you to learn from this chapter is there is a correction coming. And I've alluded to that in these comments. God is long-suffering. Thank God He is. He wants us to turn back the tide of sin and rebellion and turn to Him. It's not too late. If the world would turn to God, miracles would happen in returning to Him. But if they choose not to, as long as humans continue to thumb their noses in the face of God, as long as they continue to mock His holy word, as long as they continue to pursue every evil desire of their heart and sear their conscience against the voice of the Holy Spirit, God is prepared to send the harsh judgments against wicked rebellion. 
so they will know he's still on the throne, he's still the owner of this vineyard, and there most certainly will come a day of reckoning. Now in his parables, Jesus repeatedly depicted the owner of the vineyard or the ruler of the kingdom, as the case may be, ordering the disobedient and wicked servants to be severely punished. This is not out of character for God. Jesus described this very clearly and very powerfully. God's not unfair. It's rebellious men and women who are bringing this upon themselves. Now when the stock market prospers too long, the experts start predicting a correction. They warn that it just cannot continue to rise unnaturally. You can't have nothing but prosperity. There has to be a correction somewhere along the way. And ultimately, it always corrects himself. The experts don't always predict when, but they know a correction has to happen. It's unsustainable to have continued prosperity without correction. Now, I'm telling you, when the world strays too far from God and continues to push the boundaries of decency and call evil good and call good evil and deny the very existence of God, the experts are here to tell you there is a needed correction. There will come a time when the mighty hand of God will throw down the terrible judgments and stop the insanity, stop the unfettered pursuit of sin and lawlessness. It is coming. There is a correction coming. Any intelligent person can see it. It's coming here in the United States, across Europe. The church's lamp of holiness and distinction has been reduced to a dying flicker. God is mocked and ridiculed. Men and women are tearing down every barrier and restriction against immorality and decency and calling it liberty. And Paul told the foolish Galatian church, Galatian church do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you shall also reap. There's a correction coming. So when we read the sixth chapter of Revelation, we read the four horsemen that are coming, we realize that there are certain things about this that are yet future for us, but the Romans also realized, uh, that the, the, the church in Rome also realized that these were things that they knew were coming upon their world, and it did. And it tore their empire apart. And Christianity was smitten by the destruction of Rome. Yet it scattered and it spread around the world. So it didn't have to be the destruction of the church. It can be the health of the church. <laughs> it can be the time when the church finally gets serious about what it means to love God and to serve Him and to evangelize the world and get about the great commission. Are you ready for what's coming? Do not expect the current peace and prosperity that we enjoy today to continue forever. Are you ready? Are you ready? Would you bow your heads?